Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast, new from Resources for the Future. Every month, leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to former U.S. Senator for Louisiana, the Honorable Mary Landrieu. Senator Landrieu is a senior policy advisor at Van Ness Feldman and a member of RFF's board of directors. Their conversation took place on November 20th. Senator Landry, thanks so much for joining us. You've been in public service for four decades. Uh, You're one out of nine children from Louisiana. You know every mile of it. And you've dedicated your career, really, to representing the people of Louisiana. But you also know Washington, D.C. You grew up watching your father navigate politics of Louisiana and the nation as mayor of New Orleans, later as a member of President Carter's cabinet. No doubt that influenced your path in becoming a national figure as senator and leader on energy, climate, and other important issues. So please tell us a bit about what ultimately led you to pursue this path. And also, you know, what advice would you have to others who are earlier in their careers and considering public service? Well, thank you so much, Richard, for that question. And first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. You know, I'm a big fan of RFF. I'm a board member, but I'm a board member because I believe in the mission of what RFF is trying to do, which is to find the nexus and common ground between our economic interest of the United States and our environmental interest. And I just think that's very, very important to keep an eye on both of those as we try to clean up the atmosphere, cool down the atmosphere, and have a prosperous future for our country and world. So I really, really respect the work that RFF does and happy to be a part of the panel today. On public service, yeah, it was really exciting to grow up in a family with my father having stepped into public office in really in a sort of an unusual situation when he was quite young in his 20s. He and my mother have been married for 66 years and have nine children, 37 grandchildren and multitude great grandchildren are still happily much in love. But my father didn't come from any kind of wealthy family or any kind of status whatsoever. And it's just kind of extraordinary that he even stepped into politics. And he did it because he was educated by the Jesuits out of Loyola University. And out of just a passion of justice and driven by his faith with no money, no name, no status, no nothing, a degree from Loyola, law school from Loyola, which my sister is now dean of the law school. So we're extremely proud of that, one of my sisters. And he um, forged his own way, and I was his firstborn and was five years old when he was first elected. And so grew up in the kind of household where we were taught every day at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which my father was at the dinner table every night of our entire life, which is very hard for people to believe, but it's basically true. Maybe he missed one or two dinners, but not many, because my mother wouldn't allow it. But... um, We just grew up in a family that just really respected public service and respected the role of government and did not disrespect the role of business or the role of faith. And so it's a little disheartening for me today to see all of the criticism about, you know, government is the problem, government never works, government, it's just hogwash because actually a good government with good people, with good intelligence, good morals, good character, really make a difference. I'm gonna give you three quick examples. I thought about this this morning I wanna share. 
you know, to be very specific. And this, I could pick a million. My dad was the mayor when the Superdome was built. Most of you know where the Superdome is. It would not be where it is today, the location of it. It might have been built, but it would have probably been built out in the suburbs. But my dad was so smart and so good, and he just sort of navigated the politics of that to get that dome stadium built right where it is on Poydras. And as a result, the entire Poydras corridor and the city grew because of that in large measure. Number two, when he became mayor, literally the only people that had jobs at City Hall that had dark skin, African-American, Hispanic, were either janitors or they opened the mail. And my father just made a perfect, you know, I mean, his own decision. And of course, encouraged by others to say, I'm opening up a city that has 40% African-American because we need the talent. So he's legendary in the 1970s, became mayor, had the first African-American CEO of the city, and you could go on and on and on. And then a little thing that nobody knows about, because those are big things written in books, people know about it, but leadership makes a difference. He did some changes to the pension system at City Hall. He got no credit for it. But it saved the city millions and millions of dollars, which made it more resilient. So when Katrina hit, you know, we didn't have much money, but we had more because of what he did. So I could give you a hundred examples of things my father did, I've done, my brother, and others that I've worked with on both sides of the aisle. And I want to assure everyone here, the character of leaders makes a difference. And their philosophy and their commitment and their respect for the government of the United States is so important. And that is in some jeopardy now, and it seems to be just kind of the rage to be disrespectful and demeaning to government at every level. And I can just tell you that in current time, this last thing I'll say about being from a political family, I could not be more proud of the clerks, the vote counters, the Secretary of State of Georgia, some of the canvas workers who don't have big fancy public jobs, but their jobs are important and they're doing it well. So let's all remember going forward to stop beating up on the government. It is not the problem. It is part of the solution. And we have to build partnerships with our faith-based and our business community to make this country stronger. So that's the kind of family I came from, you know, really is sure about this is my name is Mary Landrew and hopefully we can get back on a more positive respectful posture about how important government and the people that serve can be. Excellent Mary and really appreciate you know the recognition that you're giving to the public sector but also to the other really important parts of society that when working together make it all tick and run as well as possible. You know, one of the things that you alluded to was the Superdome, and I want to turn to, you know, something else, which is maybe a, like a, a little bit of a more negative moment for the Superdome, but a very important moment in Louisiana history. Now, so you were elected to the Senate in 1996, and you really became a focus of national attention in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which really devastated the Gulf Coast. Uh, you successfully navigated a plan for resilience for the city of New Orleans post-Hurricane Katrina, and you helped secure provision that led FEMA to forgive hundreds of millions of dollars in loans for local Louisiana parishes. So what did you learn from that disaster? And, you know, what does the rest of the country have to learn from that that's still relevant today? And I suspect you touched on a little bit about that in your earlier remarks, but maybe specifically around what happened during Katrina and what we can learn from that afterward. Mm -hmm. Well, Richard, that's a very uh, broad question. And I learned so many things, like hundreds and thousands of things. So, I mean, I just have to kind of hit the highlights. 
One thing I learned is that it's just so important before the government sets out to address any problem is to really understand what the problem is and to admit it truthfully and fully and not try to fudge or not tell the whole truth for whatever. And the big lesson I learned was that even though the press was in New Orleans and did a good job, not a great job, but a good job of explaining what actually happened because they stayed in New Orleans. Sadly, they didn't go to Jefferson Parish very much or St. Bernard Parish, even though we begged them to. They didn't really do too, too much in the outlying areas. We begged them to. They just were so focused on Orleans Parish that it sort of gave the wrong impression to the country, both good and bad, about what actually happened. And then, of course, you had President Bush, who was, I think, shocked and overwhelmed at the devastation and was trying to protect himself politically from the same fate that his father had gone through, President 41 you know, after the devastation of Florida. And so the politics of this got so tough that it was shocking to me because I just felt like we just all had to roll up our sleeves and go to work. But I couldn't even work on the problem because the press was saying one thing, the president was saying something else. And I was kind of caught, you know, with one microphone, not a lot, one microphone, one staff trying to explain as best I could actually the truth about what was happening which was the entire city of New Orleans, except for the West Bank, those of you that are familiar with it, was virtually underwater, the entire city. We lost almost every neighborhood except the French Quarter and except downtown, which wasn't 10 feet of water, but was two or three, and that water stayed. That visual, which people never really got because they couldn't get away from the Superdome, which was the tragedy going on of the 100,000 people that never could leave, and we got into a big skirmish about that. But also, the size of the devastation was greater than Great Britain, and it was all the way from the Mississippi coast, all the way up the Mississippi coast, over to our part, you know, Louisiana. So I learned that trying to explain the scale of something, and if it wouldn't have been for the National Geographic, and I want to say that because I can remember just begging God one night, please let somebody say this, explain it the way it's supposed to be. And I'll never forget picking up the National Geographic and saying, yes, these pictures I can use to show people what's actually happening. So that's number one. I also learned as a leader that you can get overwhelmed because, to be very honest, at times I expressed probably more emotion than I should have, and it was overwhelming, so I had to learn how to be a leader and rest myself and not, you know, I mean, I was working 30 hours every day, seven days a week, so I had to learn personal things about leadership. But I also just learned how generous and gracious so many of my colleagues could be to be helpful and how undermining some people could be to our female governor at the time, who was uh, the only Democrat. Of course, we had Texas Republican governor. You know, Haley was in Mississippi, Alabama, and Kathleen Blanco, who's deceased, stood alone in Louisiana, and she took a huge amount of bows and arrows she didn't deserve. Part of it was gender, part of it was the politics, which was really pretty mean and hateful and undermining. But despite all that, we did do some extraordinary things because I just wouldn't give up. I mean, I just don't take no for an answer very easily. And so I just stayed focused on it. And yes, the recovery is pretty extraordinary, except for COVID. If you went now, it looks kind of quiet. 
but New Orleans came back more resilient. We all learned a lot. We went to the Netherlands. We learned how to do all sorts of things differently. We built our new public housing, the best in the country, thanks to Sean Donovan and Barack Obama. We've built a whole entirely new school system, $1.6 billion, rebuilt every school, rebuilt the whole healthcare system. We forgave, got all the loans lent and then forgiven, which was important to do for the region and built the best levy system that we've ever had. So I'm very proud of it, but I'm telling you, I have the scars, you know, mentally, emotionally, thank goodness, not physically, but it's just leadership matters. And I have to say, my colleagues on the Democratic side, Robert Byrd was amazing, never would have happened without him. He literally looked at me, I said, Robert, I need $3 billion. He said, you do? I said, yes, I do. And I can explain and justify this request to you by what the president has given Mississippi. And he gave them too much per capita and he gave us too little. If we don't correct this, we will never be able to recover. He just put his signature to the bill and gave us $3 billion. That is the truth. And if it wasn't for Robert Byrd, I don't know where we would be because we weren't going to get it from President Bush, but he led the committee and he had the power to do it. And thank God he did. So you served in the Senate for nearly two decades and you've seen up very close the contours of the policy process. And you've often sat at the intersection of conversations where energy and environment meet, given Louisiana as a large energy producer and also uh, it's, you know, the great environmental resource of Louisiana and also being on the coast. So where we are now with the election and all we've seen in 2020, uh, do you remain optimistic that something can be done specifically on climate and where do you see the barometer? How far can it realistically be moved in the next Congress? That is a great question. And that is the question of the hour, because this is the most important issue facing our whole world right now, as you all know, that are listening in. And I'm sure you're all um, in your own way, your own experts and knowledgeable about it. That's why after leaving the Senate, I joined the Van Ness Feldman team, which is a well-known firm here in DC that does this kind of work. And some of you are very familiar with it. And I did that purposely, not by chance, because I wanted to help stay leading in this space. I chaired the Energy Committee. I was on it for 18 years. I kind of felt like I was a bridge between the R's and the D's, trying to keep that centrist part together. Of course, I'd get beat up on both sides, which is sort of what happens when you're in the center, but I've gotten used to it. And so that's the work I do now, and I'm following it very, very, very closely. So I will say this. I am optimistic because the business community is really stepping up and it's business writ large. Yes, the energy companies, I'm going to say the fossil fuel companies, the oil and gas companies, the electric utilities, the car companies, the transportation sector, you know, there's some manufacturing interesting techniques and cement and steel going on. There's just the tech sector and the airlines, big ag. I mean, there are exciting opportunities. And I say that because it's going to take the business community, the leaders inside of the business community, who are Republicans, many of them, but not all, to really push and meet halfway. We couldn't really do anything with Donald Trump. And I won't even talk about that because it was a disaster, an ongoing disaster, but it will be over soon. But with a normal president, you could really work with any other president. You could really fashion, and with Joe Biden, we'll be able to do it, a possible compromise. We might not get 
everything that we absolutely have to have to exceed our Paris, even though the paper today said we're doing, you know, we're doing better meeting our Paris agreements, but that's because of the economic slowdown, which is not the way you want to get there. But I do think that there's a exciting group emerging in the Senate led by uh, Senator Coons and Senator Braun, which has 14, seven and seven Republicans and Democrats that are really committed to try to find a path forward. We'll have to see how the House you know, shakes out. But we know that the difference between the House and the Senate, I mean, the difference in the numbers is tighter than what the Democrats thought would be. So it's going to be very important for this Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, along with the center in the House, which is being formed up now. The center has been formed up in the Senate to really work with the business community and the White House, because Joe Biden is very practical on this. And being from Louisiana, we both consume a lot of energy, we produce a lot of energy, and I'm very proud of Governor Edwards, who just issued our own challenge for net zero emissions, you know, even in the state of Louisiana. And we want to find a greener path forward and our utilities are leaning better that way. So Richard, I'm very optimistic, but I will say that I don't think it's gonna be huge leaps, but I think if we just take strong strides forward with Joe Biden at the helm, we can make a lot of progress. And I really hope the business community will really lean forward and push some of the Republican senators and House members. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us. By supporting RFF, you join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. just want to go a little a bit deeper on some of these aspects. So I think about some of the contours of past um, energy and environment, um, I don't know, kind of fights, for lack of a better word, or disputes in Congress. You know, you have things like the production in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. You have things like the Keystone XL Pipeline. Do you think that the discussions and debates and conversations that will be happening around climate specifically, are they, do they have the same contours? Are they, is this, is it bigger? Is it fundamentally different? How do you think about the politics relative to some of the past um, energy and environment battles? I think it's bigger. I think it's broader. I think those kind of skirmishes and debates and fights were because there wasn't a clear vision for how to move forward. So everybody was kind of down in the weeds fighting over this pipeline and that pipeline and this project and that project. But I think Joe Biden is smart enough to realize that we need a framework or he's going to try to build a framework where the left won't get everything they want, the right won't get everything they want, but there could be a deal. You know, we can't stop drilling everywhere in America on public land. We're just not going to do that. He's not going to do that because of Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin, let alone the Gulf Coast. We have to figure out where we can drill, get our methane you know, issue set, which the industry is ready to go and would have done it had Trump not pulled it back. 
figure out how to get our gas as clean as possible. There might not be any such thing as clean coal, but I promise you, as you all know, there's some extraordinarily important technologies for carbon capture and utilization that can create jobs that are cutting edge research. Some of you are doing that research. You know how powerful it can be. That can be part of the equation. Trying to reset our whole trade uh, so that we can export some of our technologies, thinking about upgrading our nuclear fleet, which is important for the world. You know, repositioning ourselves with China and India, helping India particularly stop building these coal-fired power plants that are being built in China. I mean, I just think there's so much opportunity, but you have to have intelligence, patience, and humility to do this. Those things are absent from the White House at this moment. It is impossible to do this kind of work without that kind of leadership. Thank goodness we're going to have it. And if the Senate will do its job and the you know, House will do its job, there's a real possibility. And so I'm pretty optimistic. And you know, I just am. I'm not Pollyanna-ish about it. You know, we could run into some brick walls. But the opportunity, and I think Joe will make this a priority. Now he's got climate, he's got immigration, he's got you know, a horrible deficit he inherited from recklessness. But if he focuses on climate, which I hope he will, and the economy, you know, think about the nexus there is really kind of exciting. There's all sorts of wind energy going on in Texas and solar projects going on in our part, hopefully in our, more of our part of the world. So Richard, I'm hopeful and I really do hear positive things, not just from the NGO side, but from the industry side. And there are many bills, you know, you can look at them, there are hundreds of them. But Joe Manchin's going to be in a key position, Shelley Morecapto in the Senate, Barrasso and Carper. So you've got those, you know, it's kind of like coal is king, which is not going to be good. For, you know, I know the environmentalists hate to see that, but you've got to understand these leaders, they're going to need some solutions for the coal country, and we got to help them find it. Yeah, so Mary, you started touching on something I want to, and I don't know if you want to go a little bit deeper on this. So we'll have, it's not exactly clear what the control of the Senate will be. We have the, you know, of course, the runoff elections in Georgia that will determine the uh, control of the Senate, but it is starting to be clear you know, regardless, uh, you know, who will be in the leadership positions, potentially, what the different committees, uh, particularly on the Senate side, how they'll be comprised, you know, Senator Murkowski moving to a different role. So do you have thoughts, you've already alluded to a bit about the, you know, the potential importance of coal because of the uh, people who will be in leadership positions, both on the Republican and the Democratic side. Um, how do you think that, you know, those positions and others that might be in these committees, how do you think that's going to affect the conversation over the next two to four years? Well, Richard, let me be clear. I'm obviously hoping the Democrats win Georgia and doing everything I can to make sure those you know, two seats are won by the Democrats. But even if it is, it's going to be 50-50. And whether Barrasso is chair or Manchin is chair, or whether Carper is chair or Capto is chair or ranking member, those four are still there. I mean, that's the leadership. It's just a matter of which one of them is the chair and which one's the ranking member. And so you can understand the politics of that by just looking at their states and where they're coming from. And then I'm not as familiar, to be honest, with the specific leadership of the House, and that may be changing, but I am keeping my eyes firmly on the Senate. So it obviously has to be some kind of compromise. And I'm not talking about watered down. Everybody hears that word and they're like, well, we're really going to just like window dressing. No. But I'm talking about some real deals like, 
okay, this is where we're going to drill for the next 50 years, and this is where we're not, and this is how much we're going to produce and using this way to do it, and this is how our export strategy is going to look to X amount of countries because we want to keep, you know, Europe from being too dependent on Russian gas. We want to make sure that we're a big player in the Indochina arena, the Pacific arena. You know, we want to maintain our strength in that way, but we also want to move, you know, in solar technologies, wind technologies, offshore wind, that bill is being debated now, the whole electric sector, the electric vehicles, if we don't get moving even more in electric vehicles, China is going to be the king of that. And we most certainly could do that in an exciting way for Ohio and Michigan and, and, and in, in the South where there are a lot of plants, not in Louisiana, but in Alabama and in Mississippi and in Tennessee and, you know, that area. Joe Manchin, I can tell you, is really keen on this gas hub in West Virginia and Ohio. So is Portman and some and Casey. They're really talking about a sort of a redundant gas hub because the big one we have is in the Gulf Coast. We need to keep that, but we need to you know build another one. And um, you know, I don't even want to get into the whole ethanol and fuels and all that. I mean, but there are deals to be done and getting a price on carbon in a way that we already kind of have it through the tax code, as you all know. So I don't know. I just think if we work together and, and not try to make score political points, but really focus on the suffering of the world and try to provide a solution, I think we can get there. Yeah, what I hear you uh, saying in part is that there is still an important role for energy policy. Yes, even if climate is an increasingly important part of that, many of the issues you raised were kind of classic energy policy questions that are still out there. Yeah, but environmental too. I mean, I'm saying that I mean, we have to continue to produce energy and as low carbon or no carbon. And think about it. In a close Senate, the people that Joe Biden would want maybe originally to put on his cabinet, he's going to have to think about who can be confirmed and who can't be. And that's just our system. It's just the check and balance that some people like and some people don't. And I've been disappointed that there wasn't a much stronger check on President Trump's corruption, but that's a whole nother story. That's just the way our system is. And no matter who wins Georgia, it's just a tight Congress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you brought up along the way some specific states, and I'm hoping you could say more about the states and what role they have to play in moving clean energy and climate policy forward? How do you see their role vis-a-vis, let's say, federal? Well, I mean, the good news for California is they'll have a president that respects them and listens to them because California, you know, has a lot of good ideas. I mean, they might not have every great idea, but, you know, they're a big, big state. I think they're the seventh largest economy in the world. You know, they should not be spoken down to like this current president does. And I think Joe Biden will listen and that will be good. He'll get some good ideas from California. I think New York, I don't know where they're going to get their energy from if they don't want to put pipelines in the ground because I'm not sure they can put enough solar and wind up, but maybe they can or maybe, you know, but I think the president's going to be respectful. Richard, what I've always, I started thinking about this when I was the chairman of the committee that maybe it would help us instead of talking about just one policy for the whole nation, if we would break the nation down into like four or six regions, you think about the Northeast, Northwest, the center, the South, because those different regions geographically have different assets. Some have high winds, some have high solar, some have gas, some don't have any gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
and try to come up with like regional plans that make sense, that create jobs in the region, that get us greener, cleaner every month, every year. I don't know. And I think maybe Joe Biden might respect the governors and listen to them and encourage them to come up with some of these regional plans that might work instead of having one size fits all come down from Washington. I don't know. I think there are different ways politically to get there. And thank goodness, you know, Joe's a skilled hand and he can, I think, can figure it out or with help, he can figure it out. I want to turn for a minute back to uh, a particular state, Louisiana, and talk a little bit about climate impacts and natural climate solutions and how they affect particularly the state of Louisiana. As I mentioned earlier, there's often a tendency to focus on energy production there, but there's also very important effects of climate change on the coast, on agriculture, on tourism. And I was wondering if you see signs of that becoming more of a concern for the electorate in Louisiana, or maybe it already is a concern. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, our state uh, started, and it's been amazing, and I'm proud of this, that whether we've had Republican governors or Democratic governors or Republican legislators or Democratic legislatures, we have had a strong march forward on coastal restoration and an acknowledgement that we have a severe issue along the coast. Now, part of it is because of the impacts of the oil and gas industry and the drilling of the canals and through a very delicate marsh. But part of it, and the larger part of it really, is the levying of and the channelization of the Mississippi River, which is to the benefit of the whole nation. You know, we ship 70% of the grain out of the mouth of the Mississippi River to the world. So thank you. People in Kansas can say thank you in Iowa, you know, because they could grow a lot of corn, but they can't get the hell to the market unless they come through the Mississippi River. So we provide that. But when we do that and keep this big channel of the Mississippi going, it doesn't let the river overflow to replenish the delta that it originally built a thousand years ago. And so that's really our problem. And it's a big problem, not just for this big delta, which is, I think, the seventh largest in the world, but for deltas everywhere. And so the Netherlands is sort of the lead, in my view, the lead nation that understands this. And our Corps of Engineers is getting smarter. So We have this master plan. We just need some funding. We need to share, I believe, and recognize the impacts. Louisiana sends to the federal government every year about $6 billion. That's a lot of money for a little state like ours with a lot of poor people in it. And we, because we drill and everything off of our coast sends $6 billion, we get so little back. Uh, New Mexico gets a lot. Wyoming gets a lot. Colorado gets a lot. We get virtually nothing and are sinking and drowning. So my view has been share a little bit with us, help us support our restoration. Now, can we cut down on drilling some places? Yes. Should we move away from oil and gas and coal more quickly to other more renewables? Absolutely. But there's a positive way to do that. I think that can really help. So that's kind of where Louisiana is. It's, and, when, and, it's not, and let me just say, Richard, it's not just the oil and gas drillers exploration. It's the petrochemical industry that uses natural gas as a feedstock. So you think about all of these petrochemicals, whether it was Dow in Delaware or whether it's these big companies in Chicago and the Midwest, or whether it's along the Gulf Coast, which is a huge corridor, or outside of Baltimore, these industrial bases, we need to make sure that we're supplying enough gas to keep that going or help them convert to a different way, different fuel that gives them the intensity they need to continue to be competitive. Or we will further erode our manufacturing capacity, which has been eroded by automation, 
not by immigrants, by automation. And so I'll end there, but Louisiana, with this governor, who's a Democrat, is really pushing us to be part of a greener future. And I'll tell you, for Texas, let me just say for Governor Abbott, who I don't know him personally, but Texas is doing some really amazing things with wind, and I'm really proud of them to be talking about, you know, not just the old-fashioned oil and gas, but more solar, more wind. And I think you'll see that, obviously, Florida is doing some good things as well. You know, as you were talking about this, Mary, it just, you know, reminded me and struck me again just how important places like Louisiana are as a kind of a bit of a microcosm of the challenges we face, both in terms of addressing the impacts of climate change in a very serious way, but also paying attention to the existing industrial place where people are employed, the importance of different products, you know, energy and chemicals as well for the economy. So, you know, I think we should all have our eyes on places like Louisiana to navigate the future because um, so many pieces of this puzzle are encapsulated in places like that. I want to turn back to the Senate for a moment. And one of the things that is, you know, very different now in the way the Senate operates during COVID specifically is that, you know, members who have historically been together, they've worked together, sometimes travel together. They're not able to do that now. In a remote environment, the same opportunities, you know, to connect and to get to know each other don't exist. You've also got a new crop of house freshmen, you know, they can't have their dinner in person, all the normal spontaneous interactions and opportunities to just talk and build relationships across the aisle, you know, just aren't there. You know, there may be other things that weren't possible before that now facilitate better communication, but I want to maybe have you reflect on, you know, whether you think this has any implications for bipartisanship and compromise in the Senate, and is this just a fleeting thing or could it have uh, lasting consequences? Excellent question. I've heard a couple of people comment about it, and I think I fall in the camp that says, I hope this coronavirus gets over soon because I do think it impacts negatively in terms of the inability for members to really get to know each other. And those moments of standing shoulder to shoulder together on the train, (laughs) which we would all crowd in together and whisper in each other's ears, look, call me at three o'clock. I really think I have a solution to your problem. Or, you know, I need to get you on the phone with so-and-so that might be able to help you with your bill. None of that's going on because people can't even get close to each other to whisper those things. And that's a problem. And, you know, we had so many good conversations and formally people have no idea how that, well, not the true, lots of people that work in the Capitol know, but people that don't, but it's those informal hall conversations. You know, I'd catch one of the senators and say, hey, could I walk back with you to Dirksen for a minute? You know, I really have to ask you something about what you're thinking about this. And so we'd walk for five minutes and I'd learn more in that five minutes than I could learn in a hundred years on that subject because I'm getting it right from the senator. And that's gone. And it's really sad. And so it has to come back. Now, can we make it until the end of this? Yes, but we couldn't continue like this. I mean, I don't know how our government would function like this for a long time. But if we can get to the end of this virus and get back to normal, yes, we can make this bridge. And that's why getting this vaccine and vaccinations into people's arms is so vitally important, not just for the politics and the general health of our whole democracy from the government, but for business, you know, they're probably feeling the same way. The boards that I serve on and all the companies that I know are saying the same thing. Like, we're making it work and our people are like, great, and they really like stepped up. But I mean, this cannot be the norm going forward. 
I mean, we have to get our kids back in school. We can't work with fireworks going off behind us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I really worry. Um, and it's important for Joe Biden to be able to call these, you know, guys and gals and say, come over for dinner. We need to talk about it, you know, have that kind of camaraderie. And that's not possible because of the virus. Yeah, um, I have time, Senator Ledger, for one more question. You have a grandson now. I've seen pictures, and you've talked about spending time with him. And uh, I want to hear a little bit about your aspirations uh, for your future, for your grandson's future, and how does this inform the work that you're doing now? Well, thank you so much. Yes, he is the joy of our life. He calls me Nana Landrew. And he says, Nana Landrew, when are you coming to see me? So it's a joy. But, you know, I grew up on a road called Car Drive in Slidell, Louisiana. My grandmother bought this camp for the 19 of us. It was a 1,000-square-foot camp with no air conditioning. There were 19 of us. We slept on the floor. We crabbed and fished all day and rode up and down on little skiffs in the marsh. And I'm building a camp just like my grandmother built for us for him right now so we can keep skiing and crabbing and fishing and I've watched this marsh deteriorate around me and doing everything I can to try to help, you know, protect it and rebuild it for him. And so the work that I'm doing on climate is for him, for us. And, you know, I'm really glad to be joined by an amazing group of people listening in and thousands of people, millions of people all over the world working on it. And it's really the most important issue of our time. And so let's just keep doing it. And hopefully the coast of Louisiana will still be there, you know, when Maddox is my age, which, you know, is getting um, a little scary because we're losing so much of it. But again, part of it is the oil and gas impact, which we can mitigate against, but part of it is just figuring out what to do with the river. And the Corps of Engineers really has to put their head to this, because if we don't, this delta, just by nature of it, it being starved of the sediment that it needs to rebuild will really disrupt the living and livelihoods of millions of people on the mouth of the river and extend well beyond New Orleans. It will hit Mississippi hard and parts of Texas. Well, thank you so much, Mary. You know, we've reached the end of the session. Uh, so finally, Senator Landrieu, you know, my sincerest thanks to you for a very thoughtful, enjoyable conversation. Thanks, Richard. Uh, thanks so much. That was Richard Newell, President and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with former Louisiana Senator Mary Landrieu. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's Policy Leadership Series podcast on your podcast platform of choice. We will release new episodes every month with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. This episode of the Policy Leadership Series podcast was produced by John Taylor Williams. The live event was produced by Hilary Alvare, Libby Casey, Justine Sullivan, and Sarah Tung. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.